Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. A traveler to New England's towns and cities sees promise in their history and in their bones. There is something special that pre-exists in the bones of the downtowns, in the old mill buildings that can be retrofit into new things. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll talk with a singer-songwriter who's visited a thousand towns, who imagines a new future for some very old places, and the people who live there. In some towns, ultra-energy-efficient passive housing is quickly moving from boutique to mainstream. We want to make it so that if a building is not a passive house, then people say, oh, well, that's a real negative. Plus, the craft beer industry is growing faster in New England than anywhere else in the U.S. But is it growing too fast? Shelf space is shrinking. You know, tap space is shrinking. We'll raise a glass next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. New England's at a time of big change in the way we get our energy. Aggressive goals to cut carbon emissions have meant a move toward more renewable sources of power, but the shift from burning fossil fuels to harvesting sun and wind comes with challenges in a region where it's not always easy to find space for big energy projects. The New England News Collaborative is covering these changes in a project we call the Big Switch. First, let's go to Vermont, a state that's been leading the way on solar energy for years. It's got a small population, but big goals for renewable energy. That's meant more competition in the solar installation field, with big national companies coming in to fight for customers with homegrown companies. As VPR's Kathleen Masterson reports, that competition comes at a tricky time. The Utah-based company Vivint Solar recently announced it will be offering residential installations in Vermont. CEO David Bywater says his company was attracted to Vermont's green policies. It's always nice to have allies you know, pushing forward the green agenda and helping just the, you know, the population adopt solar. Uh, so I'm actually embarrassed that we weren't there earlier. The company already has a presence in the region. Vivin is the second largest residential solar installer in Massachusetts and does business in Connecticut and New York and recently expanded into Rhode Island and New Hampshire. And now Vermont. Vermont's a tiny state with a population of just over 600,000. It already has 40 installation companies working here. So at a glance, it may seem strange that national solar companies are coming to the state. But it may simply be that the state's policies to encourage solar development are working. In 2015, Vermont was, for cumulative solar capacity per capita, was seventh in the country. That's Sean Gallagher with the Solar Energy Industries Association. He says the residential solar market has been taking off nationally in the last few years. Gallagher says it's being driven by a combination of factors. For one, solar costs have gone down 65 percent in the last five years. And he cites new financing options like leasing that have helped more people access solar. And then the third thing, as I mentioned, is good state policies, and Vermont's been a leader there. Vermont has a good statewide net metering policy. That's been an important uh, driver. Net metering rules govern how much credit homes and businesses can bring in for selling their excess solar energy back onto the grid. 
Vermont recently rewrote its net metering rules. The new policy prioritizes putting solar projects on landfills or brownfields. That means some projects, like building solar in a farm field, will no longer be economically viable. But for homeowners, the economic incentives remain fairly high. And Vermont recently set a lofty goal of having 90% of its energy be from renewable sources by 2050. And when it comes to renewables, uh, Vermont may be a small state, but it's punching above its weight. And other national solar companies are taking notice, too. Earlier this year, Sunrun, headquartered in San Francisco, expanded into Vermont. And in 2015, California-based SolarCity started offering residential solar installations in the state. In just a few short years, SolarCity has amassed 1,000 residential customers. That's nearly half the number of projects Vermont's leading residential installer, SunCommon, has completed. Those figures don't include installations completed in 2017, which aren't compiled yet. James Moore is a co-founder of Vermont-based Sun Common. I think it's great that other companies are looking to help Vermonters go solar. Um, we welcomed Solar City when they came into the market. We welcomed these other national players. The reality is that we've seen uh, most Vermonters pick a Vermont company to go solar with. Here, I got you. Yep. So this is a, uh, a ground mount system, and it, it's essentially uh, referred to as a fixed array. That's Andrew Weibel, a co-owner of Catamount Solar, based in Randolph, Vermont. He says in some ways, larger companies coming into Vermont drive the market for all solar. For one, national companies often have a larger budget for advertising, which helps raise awareness about solar in general and sometimes sends customers their way. When they come in, it sort of identifies that we're a local company and we live here. We want to take care of our community. And, and I think that differential is actually good for us. The competition drives our market, I think. Weibel says with Vermont's new net metering rules, many of the commercial projects they used to work on, like putting panels on unproductive farm fields and building community solar projects, are no longer economically viable. So now the company may rely more on the residential market to drive business. And that's where the national companies coming to Vermont, like Vivint and Solar City, are focusing their efforts, too. But Weibel says Catamount Solar is looking to build a sustainable local economy, and that will appeal to some Vermonters. Because we're going to be here, and I doubt that a lot of them will be in the future. You know, they'll ride that wave, they'll make their profit, and they'll drive away. It's not clear if that prediction will come true. The residential market looks good right now, with low prices and regulatory incentives. But the market is volatile, and there's a big storm on the horizon. Companies are closely watching the Trump administration, which could impose tariffs on solar panels coming in from overseas. That would massively drive up the price of solar panels and stall this growing industry. That's Kathleen Masterson reporting. While Vermont has been pushing more residential solar in this volatile time, other states see the promise of solar panels helping to preserve dwindling farmland. As WNPR's Patrick Scahill tells us, solar energy is providing many farmers with new opportunities and questions. As Kevin Sullivan slowly rumbles his pickup truck across his 60 acres of property near the Connecticut-Massachusetts border, he leans in and asks me a question. What's farmland? You picture the one cow. Farmer Joe like me, I got the thing and I'm going to tell you a story about my tomatoes and my peppers. But what non-farmers generally don't picture, he says, is how to pay for it. So there's this whole, you know, what's farmland? What's usable farmland? Well, usable farmland is something that can sustain a household. 
And for a while, Sullivan says one part of his property was pretty unusable, about 15 acres where the soil was heavy and bad for growing. He tried raising corn and hay, but then a solar developer came along, offering him a lot of money to rent the land, put up solar panels, and sell that energy back into the grid. He says the opportunity was too good to pass up. The money that comes off that acreage exceeds anything else I could do out there. For solar developers, southern New England is ideal. Tax credits and locked-in contracts with power utilities can help the finances work out, and many New England farms are basically move-in ready. It's a large tract of land that's flat and already cleared, and it's right next to a big transmission system. So uh, it is a perfect place for a solar project. That's Deepwater Wind CEO Jeff Grabowski speaking at a meeting to explain his company's plans to buy up some land outside of Hartford. It wants to put panels on about 156 acres of property, some of which is rented to grow crops. If built, it could be New England's biggest solar project, powering about 5,000 homes. Some residents think the project is a waste of agricultural space in a densely populated state, but for nearby farmers like Benjamin Freund, who both own and rent farmland, it's complicated. It's one of those issues, you know, call me in 10 minutes and I'll be on the other side of it. Freund says he used to just compete against other farmers when looking for land to rent. Now he's up against deep-pocketed solar developers, too. But for farmers who own property, he thinks land use should remain a personal choice. We want to have the ability to use our land for whatever we feel is its best and highest use. And on the other hand, we don't want to have to compete against an industry that's fairly highly subsidized. Through incentives. And while some states are working to steer solar to places like old landfills and get more environmental oversight in the siting process, the state of Massachusetts is proposing taking the incentive idea a step further, offering more money for projects where farming and solar coexist. It's called dual use. Johnny Rogers is a livestock farmer who also works with North Carolina State University, educating farmers about pasturing animals. He says he started thinking about dual use three summers ago, when he got a call from his landlord telling him he'd agree to put solar on a portion of the pasture that Rogers was renting. We actually live on that same farm, so you know, it did literally hit pretty close to home. So Rogers reached out to the solar company, asking if they'd let him keep sheep on the property, munching on the grass to make sure the panels stayed clear of brush. He says he now gets calls from other farmers and solar developers asking about the idea. You're harvesting solar energy as electricity, then you're harvesting solar energy as, as protein, basically, you know, through the lamb that would be produced. Rogers says farmers are resilient, and while he hates to see crops disappearing, he says solar has provided a lifeline to some farm owners in rural parts of his state. Money that he says can stabilize balance sheets and ensure land stays, in one form or another, farmed. That's Patrick Scahill reporting. While renewable power generations become a bigger part of the New England energy mix, there's innovation on the other side of the power equation too. Conservation in the form of ultra-energy efficient or passive housing is starting to take hold. So how efficient is it, you might ask? Well, imagine eliminating central heating systems altogether, even here in frosty New England. Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever takes a closer look. You may have heard about passive housing, residences built to achieve ultra-low energy use. Imported from Germany, it's been kind of a boutique-y thing here until recently, with eco-minded homeowners making costly upfront investments to downsize their carbon footprints. But now, New England is joining a surge in large-scale passive housing development. And the Bayside Anchor, a big, green, somewhat boxy-looking four-story building that overlooks a tidal cove in Portland, Maine, has joined the trend. Brand new from the ground up. This was a parking lot. 
Architect Jesse Thompson says the 45-unit project had to meet a lot of goals. Construction had to be cost-effective enough to get financed by public and affordable housing groups. It needed common areas and office space for Head Start and a community policing station. It had to be ultra, ultra efficient. And finally, it had to meet the needs of tenants like Peter Jane's, who was one of the first to move in last winter. I know it has great insulation. I had to shut off my heat. February? <laughs> it was too hot. The building does have great insulation, extra great. Thompson says the exterior walls are several inches thicker than basic code would require. Recycled newsprint. It's 10 inches thick, you know, really well done. And there's triple glazed windows. So you can sit next to the window in the middle of winter in a t-shirt and you won't be cold. And that allows us to really radically downsize the heating system. As in, there isn't a central heating system at all. Instead, each apartment has a small baseboard electric heater with an estimated electricity cost of just $125 a year. It takes more than thick walls to achieve those energy savings. It also takes a near-perfect seal on the building's envelope and a high-tech ventilation system to purge moisture while keeping warm or cool air in, depending on the season. Thompson calls it the building's lungs. So all the bad air, all the bad smells go out, but the heat stays in. The fancy technical name is a heat recovery ventilator, but they feel like magic to us. <laughs> There are other environmentally friendly features, a roof full of solar panels, and underneath the ground floor's polished concrete slab. Instead of a basement crammed with heating systems, big retention tanks allow rainwater to filter slowly into surrounding land, bypassing the city's overworked stormwater system. And offer a cost that's low for Portland's go-go development scene. Thompson says prices for high-efficiency materials and systems are dropping fast. And, he says, public housing agencies are beginning to embrace the long-term savings gain through lower energy and maintenance costs. Everyone's starting to see how the economics are working. They're giving extra points for meeting these energy goals. So it's gonna, we're going to see a big wave coming in the next five years. It's reached South Boston now. I don't want to be embarrassing about this, but it's a kind of miracle... There, on the site of a 19th-century waterfront rum distillery, developer Fred Gordon is renting up the first apartments in what will eventually be a 65-unit passive housing building. I just, I could stand and look at this building all day long. I just eat it up. It's like having a new girlfriend. The building's very much like the one in Portland. Super tight envelope, high-tech ventilation, and no central heating system. But there's also an important difference. In this case, Gordon isn't relying on government incentives for affordable housing. He's going market rate and plans eventually to sell the units. In Southie's hot housing market, Gordon's got one advantage. He bought an entire city block there back in 1984 when land was considerably cheaper. But he insists that the distillery project proves any developer can radically reduce a building's carbon output and still make a buck. Gordon says renters and buyers are willing to pay a 10 or 15 percent premium for passive housing features. It's getting to the point where, as an investment decision, increasingly attractive. And that's what we want to do. We want to make it so that if a building is not a passive house, then people say, oh, well, that's a real negative. Uh, I would rather do something uh, which is a passive house, just better. Officials at the Chicago-based Passive Housing Institute say it's still a big ask to finance market rate units that won't realize full energy efficiency savings for decades. But momentum for large-scale passive housing really did start gaining last year. 
when the number of buildings the Institute certified doubled, and that number is on course to more than double again this year, with projects getting bigger and bigger, including a 350-unit New York City high-rise. That's Fred Bever reporting. To hear more from our energy project, The Big Switch, go to nextnewengland.org. Coming up, a singer-songwriter who's visited a thousand towns shares what she's learned about how to build great communities. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Have you ever revisited a town you hadn't seen in years and thought, boy, this place has changed? Maybe there's a new row of restaurants or a revitalized mill building, or maybe there's the hollowed-out shell of a main street. As a touring musician, singer-songwriter Dar Williams has a front seat to the changes happening in American towns, large and small. In her new book, What I Found in a Thousand Towns, she theorizes why some towns thrive and others can't seem to get out of their post-industrial slump. Williams is a singer with strong New England connections, having lived and worked in Boston and western Massachusetts. We caught up with her in our Hartford studios where she was in the area for a talk at Wesleyan University, her alma mater. Dar Williams, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. First of all, big picture, what is it about being a touring musician that gives you an opportunity or an idea about how towns work, about what makes a good community. G give me a sense of what you learn from being someone who goes all over the place, playing songs and, and meeting people. Well, it's a couple of things. I go and I also go back. So I get to see the time lapse. And that is a wonderful thing. And so many times I've gone to a place where people are hand lettering the tickets <laughs> or I'm helping them unfold the chairs to actually, because they're just beginning to, to actually, you know, make this venue happen. Or people have retrofitted a space in a really interesting way. I'll watch that happen. And then the next year I come back and they have like a local art show of the high school students. And maybe a cafe has opened. And this cafe is kind of awful. But it's, <laughs> got, you know, decent. And then the next year I go back and there's, you know, they've cleared off the waterfront. I get to see a conversation start somewhere and then it grows and then it grows and then suddenly everybody's saying, oh, no, now we have to deal with gentrification because everybody wants to live here, which, of course, is a big issue. So that time lapse of going from the post-industrial malls, big boxes, quick downturns of the closing of the mills that happened in the 90s where I was starting has turned into this next chapter in a lot of places. It's like a love story. It's a beautiful thing to watch. Yeah, And there's so many uh, towns like the ones that you describe in your book that are scattered across New England. It feels as though mm -hmm. this region, because of all the old mill communities, the mid-sized cities, some of which haven't really been able to get out of their own way, some of which have, have cropped over, over time, it seems as though this is almost like an epicenter for the sort of town that you're talking about. Do you feel that there's something specific about these New England communities that have this rich sense of history, but are also trying to bring themselves into some sort of present and grapple with these problems and ideas? There is something special that pre-exists, you know, in in the in the bones of the downtowns, in the old mill buildings that can be retrofit into new things, and even in the ethos of New England about sort of understanding that you're going to have to dig somebody out of the snow and somebody's going to dig you out of the snow. So there's a lot to work with. 
and hopefully a lot of excitement. A lot of people say, well, we're not New England. You know? <laughs> 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 like, even New England has to deal with its, its specialness. So hopefully I can... I've had some examples of things that you can do to kind of put some life into those old buildings. And, you know, please don't tear them down. Dover, New Hampshire is one town that I talk about. Mm. Um, they put all sorts of stuff into their old mill buildings and um, have all these cool kind of, you know, wheels and pulleys that they've kept up in the buildings. So you have this tech startup across the way. They show the spindles and the compasses and the stuff that they used. And there's a, there's a tension, though, in a lot of these communities, too. You, you hinted at it earlier. Gentrification is a word yeah. that, that comes up a lot. I, I think of a city that, that we cover quite a bit in our program, Portland, Maine, which you, mm. you talk about in the book, mm. a, a place that has always, frankly, been fascinating and filled with interesting people and good restaurants and, and a tourist destination of a sort. But now it's become uh, a tech hub, and it's a place where young people are moving, and it's honestly pretty expensive for a lot of people who used to live there. So how do you view that tension in places? Ideally a healthy tension, but one to pay attention to, because, you know, we're a fast-moving capitalist society, so y- y- that new money that's coming in can feel like a bunch of very unregulated locusts. <laughs> so that's <laughs> the truth. However, you know, in order to keep the pulse of the downtown going, you are going to have to have the store that sells the weird in- inflatable plastic chair that looks like a big bubble. And, you know, and, <laughs> and all y- y- those things will help finance the ability to sell a hammer and a flashlight. And everybody will have a different solution to affordability. Like somebody told me, and I haven't checked on this, but that Portland had a, a, a thing put in place to, to keep the waterfront, a working waterfront, as well as a tourist. So you have your saltwater taffy, but you also have jobs at the waterfront and and trying to keep the integrity of that. There are a lot of services and parks that people use that keep it affordable for all in terms of a, a lifestyle. Everybody's wrestling with the, the housing question. But if you have affordable housing, affordable drugstore, and an affordable grocery store, if you have those three things in place, then there's other stuff that you're going to get for free because there's so much of that fabric that's so desirable of people who engage with keeping those public parks so nice and interesting and keeping that history alive. And then you get free public schools that are awesome because people are invested in those too. You write about a visitor to resident ratio and and that being an important part. Talk about that idea. There's this thing that I call the VR ratio, which is the visitor viable, resident relevant. Visitor viable means that, you know, you have the beeswax candles and ideally stuff that's made by your residents because A, visitors want that, and B, uh, that that feeds your economy as well. But, you know, how are you going to keep those ordinary things in stock and in play so that you have the very best of what a pedestrian town can offer to people who don't have cars, people who don't like to drive? So we're talking about older residents, young people. If you get that mix, then then it's everything that you might have hoped for in a 21st century town. Mm. What do you mean by positive proximity, which is the, the idea you kind of launched the book with? i, I, I got to say, you're a singer-songwriter. You're not like a, an urban planner, but you've come up with a lot of ideas that I've not really heard from urban planners necessarily. And this is an interesting one. Tell me about positive proximity. They have words for it like high-trust community. That's a word. Uh, there's something called bridging social capital. But for me, I came up with that term because a friend of mine said, Dar, guess how relationships are formed in communities? And I said, uh, values. And he said, no. He said, it's just proximity. It's just who's around. 
Because towns that are figuring out how to not just be sustainable, but actually, you know, stable, but actually thrive and have really interesting tomato festivals have a sense, an ethos in the air where people say, oh, there are a lot of people really close by. That means different skill sets. That's a constructive force. That's a positive force. That's a collaborative opportunity. Um, And that's called positive proximity. So towns that have a critical mass of positive proximity know that they have a beautiful mill building that they can retrofit into startup companies and apartments. Towns that don't will have a developer going in and saying, hey, I don't want to deal with this. Let's just knock this all down. And no one's going to want to move. (laughs) People are going to want to move to the retrofitted mill town where you have that positive proximity of, oh, we love our history. How do we live in these history-filled streets? And and that history, of course, in New England towns is is so important. But but do we... Do we become prisoners of that? I, I, no. Are, you, 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 you don't worry sometimes that because we keep the white steeple church and the green the way it was 200 years ago and the mill building that maybe has been vacant for 100 years, that maybe there's, there's something that doesn't allow us to let go of a past in order to welcome in something new. Well, what I sort of saw as the, as the um, ideal of a community is what I call hometown pride and worldly welcome. So then you get the best of both worlds. You're like, I love that beautiful steeple, and I see it when I drive home, and it's home to me to see it. But you also say, oh, my goodness, we have these drumming companies that are that have been coming through and having these incredible interactive performances. We want that in that church. you know. So let's get a really great sound system for the church. Let's paint the, the steeple purple. If you have positive proximity, what you do is you take the thing that's there, and then you discuss how you're going to keep it launched into the forward-facing, outward-facing, or identity-affirming you know, part of who you are. I do want to talk about the one uh, New England town that you go into depth on, uh, Middletown, Connecticut, a place where mm-hmm. you went to college. But, but I want to take, take us through some of these other ideas. When you talk about spaces and the importance of spaces in places, you're not just talking about open public spaces. What do you mean by a space that helps to connect a community? Well, I get kind of specific, but um, a great cafe will do a lot. And there is a cafe like this in um, Beacon, New York, that kind of had all these different parts. It had things that I recommend, like specifically a toy corner. Um, Also a second room for that cafe. If you have the auxiliary space where the depressed teenager can hang out and not feel like someone's going to run her out, she, she might become, you know, herself there or have a poetry reading or people can have a meeting back there. Bars are great. Don't be a prude. Believe in your bar. (laughs) Uh, Waterfronts. I have a whole chapter on waterfronts just because that specifically is such an opportunity. How can we find our way to the waterfront accessibly, not just a tiny footbridge or a clammy tunnel? Parks that are used as opposed to kind of parks that are just kind of rarefied and off to the side. Those are all the spaces that get people not just talking, but talking about their community. When I was reading uh, the, the part of your book about the cafes and that secondary space, I was thinking about a, a little cafe where I, I had a business meeting in Brattleboro, Vermont. Mm. And it was a beautiful place, and it overlooks the river there. And I noticed that people were just coming in and doing work, and they were having their own meetings, and it was one of these vibrant spaces. But I also thought that it's so dependent on the people who run that cafe mm. being able to make it. Right. It, it's mm-hmm. it's great to have that space and it might be the perfect cafe for a time period. But we all know what happens in a lot of towns where 
the restaurant or the bar or the cafe that you love closes because the people there just can't make it. And mm. I, I wonder how we how we do that and we make sure that people are able to to succeed doing something that might not make a whole lot of profit, but might benefit the community. Well, there's all sorts of creative directions for that. So one is maybe having a second room so that there's more circulation <laughs> in the first room to buy stuff. Um, and there's all the sort of the, the merchandise and, and things that you can still do while still having a big bulletin board and doing local art and, and things like that. Um, but the other thing is, you know, for us to have some conversation about, I mean, ideally sort of a policy conversation about how important it is to have that kind of space. So how do we, you know, in, in Beacon, somebody said, maybe we should start talking about building ownership of business owners so that these buildings can stay as they are and not be chasing after the the rising rents that come from all that, you know, success. Maybe there's something where we have the bookstore that's combined with the cafe so that each can value add the other. You know, creativity is going to definitely be a part and compassion for the owners so that you're not just holding on to tables that <laughs> other people could be using <laughs> yeah, you, is you, another you, key thing. Yeah, you have to be a good tenant of the, that cafe space, not sitting there with your $2 cup of coffee for five hours. Exactly. When, when people are waiting for this. That's a part of it, too. When, when, you, when you write about building identity, we've already talked quite a bit about history, but, but you, you use an example of Lowell, Massachusetts, one of these communities with this rich industrial history. And the remnant, the residue, and the, the promise of it is all these great old mill buildings and all this great space to do. What, what do you see in Lowell uh, that, that teaches us something about how to forge an identity through history? Well, you know, Lowell is, is, is still struggling in a lot of ways. But Lowell has these incredible layers of history as a mill town, a mill town that had a strike, um, the, the home of Jack Kerouac. Uh, it's got beautiful architecture. It's the home of Whistler, the painter, and all these things that you can kind of dig into. They have all these museums in place, so they get different kinds of state and federal funding. Some of that's dried up, and the town is suffering for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, out of that engine came sort of participatory art spaces, participatory little galleries, but that were affordable where they sold to local art. And the cafes and the small spaces and the great restaurants that go with it, too. So it seemed like history was this place to dig in and start. And then out of that came, you know, the the beautiful concert series on the lawn of one of those buildings. I saw them digging into history and then building the future out of that history and doing a really beautiful job. They haven't gotten all the way yet. And I think that federal funding drying up has affected them. You talk about an idea that I, I think many people uh, have long understood about uh, cities like Hartford, Connecticut, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. It's something called capitalitis. <laughs> capitalitis is this like this beautiful thing kind of gone awry, which is that capital buildings were supposed to be like the palaces of democracy. So they're beautiful and they're big and they're grand and they're somewhat unapproachable and they seem somewhat unsafe. So there are tons of locked doors. So you have that in Hartford, mm-hmm. gorgeous building. And, and then it's got the park outside. If you just have a capital property and you've got the capital building itself, and then you have the, the, um, oh, the courts and the municipal buildings around it, no restaurant wants to go near that because you're nine to five. The people don't know to get inside it themselves. And so you'll literally have people walking into work, stepping over syringes, so that they can do the work for the, the people. 
And it's, it's dispiriting for them. It's dispiriting for the public. And it's a huge drain on the life of the city. My joke is that we should get a disco ball into every Capitol building <laughs> in every state and really open up the space. In, you know, it can't just be where you bring in middle schoolers and talk about state government. I mean, could we reimagine the public space and put a cafe for the people in the courthouse? I mean, can we put some private uses or some some kind of use for the public specifically into these buildings to keep them more 24-hour, keep them more engaged with the life of, of the town? There are so many New England communities that are the way that they are, uh, for better or for worse, mostly better, because of the presence of a, of a university. Uh, mm. You write about one of them, uh, Middletown, Connecticut, just a few miles down the road from Hartford, where you went to school at Wesleyan University. And that is a place clearly that has changed quite a bit over the years. And you've, as you said earlier, seen that change as someone who's been coming back there time and time again as a performer, as a, as a student, as, as an alumnus. So, so tell me about the story of Middletown and what you see there in terms of the way it's grown as a community. When we first came in the 80s, it had this beautiful grand Main Street. So, of course, what makes Main Street stores? So the malls had arrived and taken all this life out. The, the buildings, the factories had gone down, literally been raised. Rob Rosenthal, who's this great sociology professor there, he said that there used to be 5,000 people out on the streets of Middletown. And we would go, and it was not like that. And there was an older population with mobility issues. And so just watching all of these kind of people kind of finding their way around this shuttered up Main Street, we thought it was kind of funky and interesting, but very different from us. And we lost out on that because Wesleyan is filled with eccentric, wonderful, imaginative students. We also are imaginative and creative about wondering what our lives could look like after college. And Middletown was a beautiful, affordable, interesting place with people doing real pilot stuff um, that we could have learned about as feeling like co-citizens. Instead, we saw it as either a place where you went to this really strange um, drugstore called Pelton's to, you know, and you'd rent a prosthetic leg for your performance art piece or something, or... <laughs> that's my best visual of the entire book. I thought <laughs> that sounds about right for the Wesleyan student, yes. <laughs> you know, and if you, and you'd write one around the prosthetic yeah. leg, you know, <laughs> or, um, or you went to do your charities. And, and we, we didn't call it charities. We call it service. They call it service learning now, but it's different because there's an understanding that it's interactive. You're getting something from serving the, the community you know, by doing the data entry and the, the, the data gathering and stuff. Um, but we sort of said, oh, yes, when you get involved with your college town, you're working at the food pantry. But still that idea that we were being charitable towards a community was also a little wrongheaded. And it didn't help either of us, I think, at the end. Now there's this bookstore that's in the middle of town, and that's the campus bookstore. So that Main Street campus relationship can really start to find its feet even more than is, than is already happening. How much of the work in the towns that you visited and that you write about, how much of the work that needs to be done has to be done around the issue of race and how different members of the community, depending on how they grew up, where they grew up, what neighborhood, how they view the place very, very differently? Because I think a lot of the towns that you write about some of these towns I know very well, um, I'd get a much different reaction about the Cozy Cafe if oh, yeah. I talked to some people in town 
versus if I talk to others. Yeah. Well, at every at every Q and A, there's someone who stands up and and looks at me. You know, it's usually like a college educated woman in her 30s and she goes I just wonder if you're thinking about diversity and I was like I thought about it on every page and every paragraph you know because I'm thinking of concepts the thing is the manifestation of the concepts are words like chardonnay basil cafe museum and that has a buzz to it mm-hmm. and a, and I get that and that and there is something to look out for there but Underlying that um, is this idea of social capital, the bank account of trust and belonging and connection in a community. Coming out of this book, my motto was think in bridges. So if you have something that's working for you, you know, let's say you start a swimming lesson, you know, somebody gets a beautiful uh, cordon put around a part of your river and there's free swimming. But then you discover there are a lot of people who can't swim. And a lot of times that's an economic divide. And a lot of times the economic divide historically has also been a racial divide. Mm-hmm. So you say, you know what? I'm thinking in bridges. Is there a senior center where there's a retired coach of any kind who can give you input and maybe be involved? Can you talk to the why about it? Can you talk to the school? How do you make sure you invite a lot of people in and model the fact that this is for everybody? And also see this as a an advantage because when you go into the city council to get those permits and to get it all in place, you're going to have someone from the senior center, the YMCA, the school at your side, and you're going to have those relationships and those potlucks and those donut breakfasts and those things uh, in place. Think in bridges and see how you hold on to the thing that's you know your identity and your past, but how well it can bridge to somebody else with their whole identity and past without compromising or watering down the richness of where you came from. Beth Macy said something so great. She she wrote Factory Man, and she said, a community thrives when there is a diverse range of equal voices. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great thing to strive for. Mm -hmm. The book is called What I Found in a Thousand Towns, A Traveling Musician's Guide to Rebuilding America's Communities. One coffee shop, dog run, and open mic night at a time. Dar Williams, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. Coming up, One hallmark of change in your town, that brewery that opened down the street a few years ago, and the one on the next block, and the next. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. The craft beer industry in New England has plenty to raise a glass to. Craft beer is growing faster here than anywhere in the country. But is it growing too fast? Is it possible to have too much good beer? Tom Verdi went to find out. Business has been booming and bubbling at Graysale Brewery in Westerly, Rhode Island. The sounds and smells of fresh beer simmering away in brand new fermenting tanks permeate the historic brick building. Owner Jennifer Brinton says the additional 60-barrel tanks were needed to keep up with demand for Captain's Daughter and Flying Jenny, two of the brewery's most popular ales. This last expansion that we're going through now We have four more 60s coming in, 
And then this one over here is a 120. Graysale's million dollar expansion doubles the footprint of the facility, as well as its annual capacity of 6,500 barrels. Graysale is among the nearly 350 New England craft breweries to open in the last decade or so. In terms of production growth, that's more than three times the national average, according to the Colorado-based Brewers Association. For craft beer fans like Matt Cavati of Mystic, Connecticut, a regular at the five-year-old Beard Brewery in nearby Stonington, it's clearly a buyer's and a drinker's market. There's Fox Farm that just opened up in Boston. We go to Trillium, um, uh, and then uh, we go up to Massachusetts to uh, Treehouse Spring as well. If we're in Vermont, we go to The Alchemist, so we go to um, uh, Hill Farmstead. So we, kind of wherever we're in the area, we kind of seek out local breweries. New Englanders' taste for beer goes back to the Pilgrims. They each drank a gallon a day aboard the Mayflower and landed at Plymouth Rock not just because they were off course, but because they were running out of beer, which they considered safer to drink than water. By the mid-20th century, most New England towns and cities had local breweries just down the block. But these gradually folded in the face of competition from the major national brands. These days, the region is still playing catch-up to the West Coast in Colorado, where the craft beer craze began back in the 1980s. Yet in some corners of New England, where other iconic industries once ruled, craft beers is doing just fine. Melissa Corbin is executive director of the Vermont Brewers Association. The economic impact that craft brewing had in Vermont is estimated at $376.7 million in 2016. So that is exceeded the maple syrup industry. And as far as skiing goes, that's a $900 million industry. But when you just take into account skiing on the actual mountain and not the hotels and restaurants around that mountain, that's a $300 million industry. So when you just look at skiing itself, craft beer has exceeded on-mountain skiing as an economic impact and exceeded maple syrup. New England is certainly one of the densest places for breweries and, and for you know craft consumption around the country. That's Bart Watson, chief economist for the Brewers Association. He says that Vermont, with its 50 craft breweries and Maine with its 77, rank high in terms of breweries per capita. Maine, in fact, is number seven in the nation, while Vermont stands at number one. Watson points out these rankings are relative to those states' populations, which are smaller than those of West Coast mega craft brewing states like California or Oregon. Still, the question of whether or not the craft beer industry is reaching a saturation point is one he hears a lot from journalists. Trained economist that he is, he typically answers with yet another statistic, which he hopes puts the question into perspective. 75% of the breweries in the country still make less than 1% of the beer. That's collectively. But some brewers, like Sean Larkin of Revival Brewing in Cranston, Rhode Island, have been scanning the horizon these days and wonder just how much of that less than 1% the market can absorb. Shelf space is shrinking. That's first and foremost. Um, you know, tap space is shrinking. That's second. So if you're relying on shelves or taps to drive your business, you need to reconsider that business model. One cost-cutting strategy is contract brewing, that is, having another brewery make some of your beer for you, which saves on overhead. Another is a gambit that's as old as salesmanship itself. Ryan Hellert is manager of Dick's World of Wines in Westerly. What you're starting to see is breweries that may brew a very small batch, then it creates a demand so that when it comes in, 
that store only gets five cases and it's out the door. And I'm starting to see more of that from a lot more breweries. And that's going to be the way that these breweries survive and sustain. Because if, if it's not on the shelf and people are looking for it, the next time they see it, they buy more of it. So, no matter how you pour it or how it measures up against the big national brands, in terms of sales or production, when it comes to craft beer, less, it seems, really can be more. That's Tom Verdi reporting. In the mid-1800s, New England was a global center for the clock-making industry. Today, the region's filled with antique, often centuries-old clocks in church steeples, libraries, courthouses, and homes. That industry, of course, is long gone, and slowly the people who preserve the artifacts are disappearing, too. Dan Richards has our story. I met up with James Roberts at the Old South United Methodist Church in Reading, Massachusetts. It was easy to find. Sitting next to the town's historic green, the century-old, white, wooden-framed church stands out like a postcard. Did you see the clock by any chance? It's uh, about an eight-foot dial. It's glass, oh, about every three-quarters of an inch thick. Come on up and take a look. All right. I need somebody to help me wind it. <laughs> James brought me inside the church and led me up a flight of stairs to a closet with a ladder that led to the attic. From the attic, we climbed another ladder into a small, square, sun-filled room with massive glass clock faces on each side. In the middle of the room sat the clock itself. The mechanisms that wind it take up the entire room. We're going to take this cable and put it on this drum. It's got to go down here, come all the way down, and come back part way. It goes over there, double pulley, and then the weight is way down in the hole, and another double pulley. I'll just wind it a little bit, then we'll talk some more. As he winds the machine, a 750-pound weight is lifted up to the ceiling of the room. The weight slowly descends over the next seven days, powering the clock. As certified master clockmakers, James and his brother David restore clocks of all ages and sizes. This church, though, is one of their longest-running clients. They've been winding this clock every week since they were first called in to repair it in 1978. But who's going to keep it and all the other timepieces they care for ticking when they retire? The answer may be nobody. That's because there's a shortage of expertly trained clockmakers. And it's only getting worse. We might like to see this one out here. See the people turn and dance while it plays the music. At David and James' shop in North Wilmington, Massachusetts, clocks and dials and chimes hang on every inch of the wall. Grandfather clocks are clustered throughout, like guests wandering through a party. The shop, in other words, is as packed as their schedule. We're swamped. We are absolutely swamped. David and James often have a year backlog on repair orders. Among expert clockmakers, that's not uncommon. You won't find a good clockmaker who doesn't have way more work than they can possibly do. That's Jordan Ficklin, the president of the American Watch and Clockmakers Association. If anyone has their finger on the pulse of the clockmaking business, it's him. There are currently probably fewer than a thousand full-time professional clockmakers in the United States. I think there certainly is capacity for two or three times that easily. The biggest reason for the shortage seems to be that, despite demand, hardly anyone is entering the field. And that's because there just isn't anywhere to learn. The school in Pennsylvania where David and James trained closed in 1992. Today, no full-time clockmaking programs exist in the U.S. Historically, of course, there's another way to learn, through apprenticeships. 
and the fate of the industry might very well depend on them. I knew that I was going to need employees to continue the business, so I developed a course of uh, an apprenticeship system based on the system that I went through in Britain. Ray Bates, owner of the British Clockmaker in Newfane, Vermont, has been making and repairing clocks for over 50 years. He's also trained several apprentices. He's particularly proud of his most recent graduate, his son Richard. It wasn't something that came easy, actually. He turned me away my initial three, three times of wanting to do this. Eventually, Richard convinced his dad that his interest wasn't just a phase and started out on a four-year apprenticeship under his father. They've been working together ever since. I love the problems. I love the having to use my brain and think things through and, um, and knowing and feeling the sense of accomplishment after I've uh, solved a series of riddles. And uh, that for me, is, that's the part that never gets boring to me. Richard is in his 40s, practically a spring chicken by clockmaker standards, and he's eager to carry on the business. I'll do my part to see if I can continue it. You know, the business was established in 1957, so I'd like to see it pass 100 years. That'd be pretty, pretty amazing, but I wouldn't be alive for that, I don't think. I might. I'd be in my 90s. I'd, you, know, you never know. Whether Ray and Richard's business makes it to 100 or not, for an industry struggling to grow its next generation, maybe even one new clockmaker is something to celebrate. That was independent producer Dan Richards reporting. We've got photos of the inside of that clock tower in Reading, Mass, and of the Roberts Brothers Workshop on our website, nextnewengland.org. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Kion Wolf. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The Dar Williams track you heard earlier was Johnny Appleseed from her album called Emerald. If you like this week's show, you can give us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us by searching for Next New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Melville Charitable Trust and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.